Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest installment for what it's worth. I know that there are literally tens of dozens of you out there waiting anxiously for this podcast. The viewership numbers are through the roof. I think, uh, I think I might be getting double-digit listens to these. I know that sounds incredulous. It sounds impossible. It sounds beyond belief, but it's true. But you might ask yourself, who is this podcast for? And by the way, it's going to be noisy today. My wife's going to be coming in and out. The phones might ring. My email's going off. It's a Friday. It's chaotic. Uh, there have been no less than 16 military helicopters in packs of four flying over the house. Not sure what that means. Probably can't be good. But anyway, this podcast is for anyone who loves helmet-to-helmet contact. You know who you are. Go ahead and admit it. I'm right there with you. You're on my team if you love helmet-to-helmet contact. And it's also for anyone who bought a 30-pack of Milwaukee's Best for just a quiet night at home and before leaving the store stopped and wondered to yourself, do I have enough? If you bought a 30-pack of Milwaukee's Best and weren't sure you had enough, welcome aboard. This podcast is for you. Okay, Hero of the Week, we have two. The first is anyone fighting COVID on the uh, Native American reservations, the nations around the country. They are being especially hard hit, especially here in New Mexico. Uh, Gallup, the city of Gallup, is on lockdown from people coming in and out from out of state, from people coming in and out across the interstate, which is Gallup is dissected by the I-40. There are checkpoints. They're keeping people out of town. Uh, There's not a huge infrastructure there to fight something like COVID. So anyone who is there fighting the the good fight on the Indian nations, um, giving a a tip of the hat here, Uh, going back historically, reading a book right now about gold, And man, it is not too kind to us gringos who came in and did just atrocious things to Native Americans going back as far as the first time we encountered them. And it's awful. And there's a lot of revisionist history that happens these days. And people try to rewrite history as if what we did was not that bad. It is and it continues to be. So we need to face up to it. Okay, moving on. The second hero of the week. And by the way, I did an hour recording yesterday from another set of notes that when I got done, I said, I don't like that recording, and I threw it away. So that whole last week's For What It's Worth episode got thrown out, and now I'm on to this week's. So I don't know what's happening. I'm getting ready to do a film about my health history, uh, which is just not good. It's terrible. And I hadn't really thought about my health history in quite a while, and I went back to childhood and started compiling all the things that have happened to me, and it's terrible. My immune system has been bad since I was born. And uh, I just thought I'd do a change of pace and give an update on Lyme disease. That's what I'm working on this afternoon. And right now we are moving on to the second hero, which is the entire Republican Party. And I know what you're thinking. You're like, Milner, how could they possibly be your hero of the week? But just think about it. The stable genius is rounding into form. I mean, stable genius, they can't keep him away from the podium, even after he said he wouldn't come back because it was a waste of time. He can't stop himself. He just can't help himself. He goes back, and when the stable genius is encouraging Americans to inject themselves with household disinfectant, and not a single person in the Republican Party makes a public statement saying, do not, under any circumstances, do what the president is advising. You know how much willpower it takes to do that? Those people on the podium behind him who you see their eyes bug out of their heads, and you can tell what they're thinking. Don't call on me. Don't call. It was like me in math class in middle school. I hit the wall in mathematics in sixth grade. I went from mathematical prodigy in fifth grade 
to hitting the wall and not being able to comprehend basic algebra. By the time I was in sixth grade, I started to have to get tutored. And so my time in math class was a terror for me. I had night sweats about math class because I couldn't understand it in real time. The only reason I was able to get through math is our next door neighbor was a college math instructor. And she said, if you give my son a ride to school, this was a little bit later, but in sixth grade, she started tutoring me. And she was the one that would present mathematics, uh, mathematical material to me and say, do you understand why you need to know this? And I'd say, I don't need to know this. And she'd go, yeah, you do, because you're going to be whatever. You're going to be in real estate, and you're going to do this, and this is where this formula applies. And then it made sense, and I was able to get A's and B's in math. But before that, I was like the stable genius. You know, I just did not want to hear it. I couldn't comprehend anything. To watch them stand in the back thinking, don't call me, don't call me, don't single me out, please don't single me out, that takes an incredible amount of willpower to stay silent when you know that your leadership is leading us down a road of epic disaster. So if this is for you, Republicans, your constituents and your Congress people and Senate people and your president and your VP, uh, yeah, we're going to pray them away. That's what we're going to do. Okay, moving on. I've got a ton of points this week. I think most of these are good points. Let's just get the first one out of the way. Let's throw fastball down the middle of the plate. Catcher gives the one signal. Batter knows it's coming. Coach knows. Team knows. Fans know. Fastball down the corner of the pl- down the center of the plate. Either you're good enough to hit me, or I'm going to smoke one by you. Softcore porn on YouTube. I admitted I was wrong. Every single category of ex- that exists on YouTube uses soft softcore porn to sell whatever it is, idea, what product, what person, what anything. It's just the most incredibly wonderful thing I've ever seen. But there's a wrinkle that softcore porn isn't enough anymore for some people. And so the wrinkle that I find fascinating and wonderful and just makes me warm inside on a cold Santa Fe morning like we have today is you have to throw in a fake crisis, okay? That could be if you're sailing, you got boarded by pirates or you ran aground or someone fell off and drowned or whatever, and you use that to sell membership. And it's wonderful. Um, you could be a cyclist. <clears throat> you got hit by a car. Or you almost got hit by a car. Or you got in a fist fight with a redneck who tried to run you off the road. Or you got in a fist fight with, um, I don't know, two rednecks who tried to run you off the road. The fake crisis, where then you get into the film and you realize there was no crisis. They're just selling the idea of something horrible happening, trying to trick you into thinking, wow, this person is so amazing with this fake crisis that I think I'm going to follow them and subscribe and hit the like button and buy their t-shirts. So anyway, for all you softcore porn fake crisis people out there, I give you five star. It's a five star Friday and you're getting five stars. Okay, moving on. This point is very important and it's mind boggling to me. And I honestly don't have an answer here. This is about purity. And it's about purity in the art and photography world. Now, personally, I don't think there is purity. The only purity that we would see, we wouldn't see. So if you're some guy who, or person who lives in the mountain, in the mountains, and you're a hermit, and you create artwork, and no one else in the world sees it, and there's no commercial application, and that was not your idea, and you just made something, and that's it, and you moved on with your life, okay, that's kind of an artistic, a pure artistic endeavor. I don't know a single person working in photography or the art world today that is pure. I just don't because there's a commercial angle to everything. That's how it works. Um, uh, The best way that I heard it described here in America as of late is America is no longer a country. It's a business. And if you you don't believe that now, 
based on what's happening at the federal level as they say, look, the virus is too complicated and too boring and too busy and it's too expensive and too complicated. We don't want to solve it. We're just going to open up the economy. That's called trading lives for dollars. And that's evidence, more evidence of the fact that we are no longer really a country. We are just a business. And that's what they're doing is they're opening us back up for business. Art and photography is the exact same way. Right? I don't know anyone who's working commercially or putting their work into the world. If they're an artist and they're selling pieces or selling work or represented by a gallery, they are not pure anymore because you can't be pure and be in a commercial endeavor. Right, That sort of defeats the purpose of it. There are always strings attached. But there is a subset of the creative world who wants to think that there is, and they also want to think that they are the ones who get to pick and choose what's pure and what's not. And it's just mind-boggling to me because I don't understand what planet these people are living on. And I'll give you an example. So someone wrote in, I did a YouTube film, and someone wrote in and said, wow, that was a great, great film. Too bad Blurb was involved. Okay, so I make films for myself. I make films for Blurb because that's part of my job, and they, I'm a salaried employee. I love the job. It's the best job I've ever had. So I make films with them for them, and I make films for a third-party channel. The films for myself and the third-party channel are branded or bumpered at the front and back with a shifter logo. It's not really a logo. I don't have a logo, but it's a shifter thing. That's like three seconds or four seconds of shifter. So it's not pure. That film is branded me. I am shifter. So there goes the purity out the window, right? Blurb asked me to make a film. I make it because, I've, again, they're paying my salary. That's my, I have a great life because of Blurb. So I bumper the films. And it's, again, it's like a four-second thing. It has the Blurb logo, it has some books, and it has the title of what the film is about, right? It's pretty innocent in the grand scheme of pure, pure, unpure. But, of course, people take offense. Oh, my God, I can't believe it. I can't believe there's a, there's a corporation behind this. That is just so monumentally naive, I don't even know where to begin. But I'll give you a better example. So three times this week alone, I've gotten emails from people, gladly. I'm, I'm very happy to receive these emails because they're all people I love. And they're all sending me stuff that's really good because they've vetted and sort of curated it. And they go, Milner, this is right up your alley. So I get these pieces, and they are two of the three are, are to the same site, which is a big art site. Right? It's a big online and print art community. It's considered a very high-level art community. Um, it's global, blah, blah, blah. I've been on the site a million times. There's, there's always good content. Two of the three stories that come in are to this site. And so I go to look at the feature that the person is telling me to look at, and it's a wonderful feature. It really is. I think the work is incredible. The person who is making the work is, is dirt poor, and has hardly, I, I can't imagine, has a wonderful life based on their artwork, even though the artwork they're producing is wonderful and world-class. And all, so um, imagine me sitting at the computer looking at a 24-inch uh, monitor, and the monitor is divided in half. The left-hand portion of the screen is the feature I'm reading, and the right hand and the rest, the top banner, the bottom banner, etc., and, and intersecting, dissecting the feature that I'm reading are massive advertisements. And in this case, they happen to be massive advertisements from a jewelry company, a billion-dollar company that is run by multi-multi-millionaires. Okay, so on the surface, the, the banner ad and the advertising on the, on the top and the sides is twice the size of the actual feature 
I would say a size and a half larger than the actual pictures from the feature I'm looking at. So what I'm, my point is that almost two thirds of the screen are advertising for a high end billion dollar a year company run by multimillionaires that are running advertising over the top of this art, quote unquote, art story. Now, for some people, it's perfectly acceptable and it's totally different than me bumpering the film with blurb. They've made a decision because it's the art organization, right? They look at the art organization and they go, I'm giving you a pass because you're an art organization, but I'm not giving you, Milner, a pass with Blurb, or I'm not giving Blurb a pass because you're not on the same level as the art organization, at least in my mind. So I'm going to take the time to write in a comment on YouTube disparaging you or in the film and company by saying you put a bumper on there. So this, it happened again this week as well, Same directed to the same site, same jewelry ads over the top of everything. This is so wildly hypocritical and naive. And the truth is, I look at that those jewelry ads, and I'm never going to buy a piece of jewelry from this company because that's just not what I'm interested in. My wife's not interested in that. I get it. They're very successful companies. A lot of people want that kind of thing. And a lot of the people who are watching these art websites are the one percenters. Right. If you're if you're scraping to get by, and you have kids and a family, and you're driving kids to daycare and blah blah blah, odds are you're not spending a whole lot of time on on these art sites. Right. This is a one percenter wealthy, for the most part, crowd who is looking at this. These are people. These are people that have time to spend on an art website. And it's not to say there aren't a lot of struggling artists out there that might also be spending time on there. But to be offended by the fact that the art site said, "Oh, we're going to take a huge amount of money." from this jewelry company so that we can show you stories that we think are good. That's how it works. If you are under some illusion that that's not how the world works, then you're in for a major rude awakening, especially if you get into the photography space. You think that you're going to become a photographer or you're going to become an artist and somehow you're going to make it at that level without engaging with that kind of big business, corporation, one percenters, etc. I mean, look at the master painters that are out there and look at their legacies of bouncing in and out of these industries and the galleries that represent them, the museums that represent them. That's a whole nother can of worms. Museums and where their funding comes from and what they show based on where funding comes from. I mean, this is a complicated, ugly world, right? And what often gets lost is the actual artwork and the process. And the same for photography. The politics that happen in galleries... And also, and I'll throw in another complicated wrinkle in here, in times of economic crisis, photography shows take on different relevance at art museums because they're cheaper to ship and install. Frank, that's it. It has very little to do with the work. It has everything to do with the fact that you can package and ship a photo exhibition oftentimes for less money than you can an art exhibition. And so all of a sudden it becomes popular. Well, how, does, how is that impacted in times of economic crisis? You know, maybe they're not getting funding from the one percenters or... Maybe one percenters aren't donating like they were. All of this. But you have to realize all of it is a business-related thing. And to deny this and to think that for some, some unknown reason someone's going to be able to come in and like remain pure through this I think is completely and utterly naive. Do you realize how many assignments I've done since the late 80s for companies that I despise? For companies I don't believe in, for people I don't believe in, for news organizations I don't believe in, for news organizations that were compromised by and purchased by big business who turned the news organization into a propaganda arm for the corporation, 
yeah, this goes way back. There were times where I would vehemently submit images and say, I do not want my name anywhere near this. I needed the money and I did it. Um, I remember taking pictures off of a television once for a media outlet that was horrible. It wasn't National Enquirer, but it was damn near. And I just told them, I said, I don't want my name anywhere near this, but I'll do these pictures and I'll take your money and I'll move on. So anyway, I think for those of you out there who just think that there's some sort of weird puritanical ideal location out there, like Avatar, just think about Avatar and those, you know, 30 seconds into Avatar, I was like, if I see another floating butterfly, I'm going to throw up. I'm going to punch the guy next to me, who's my friend, and I'm going to throw up and I can't stand this. And this is the worst movie I've ever seen. All right, let's move on. I could have done a whole point on Avatar, but uh, I'm not. All right, moving on. Point three. I just thought of this this morning. <clears throat> this is very important. So technically, I'm a full-time salaried employee at Blur, but I'm full-time reduced hours. I'm supposed to work 30 hours a week, right? That's a joke. I always work more than 30 hours a week. I haven't done a 30-hour week in a long time. And during the pandemic, it's been way more, maybe double that. So, but I got to thinking. So I think all of us would be better. And there, there's a brand of clothing, outdoor clothing that I like that's out of Salt Lake City called Cotopaxi. And Cotopaxi, when you buy something for them, and their stuff's not expensive, and it's awesome, and it lasts forever, and there's a great story behind it. So check out Cotopaxi if you don't know about them. And no, I'm not sponsored by them. I don't know anybody there. I've never spoken to anyone there. I have nothing to do with them. So when you buy something for them, you get a sticker. You get a little thing in the mail that says, hey, this is the person who built your backpack. This is their signature. This is where they live. This is who they are, blah, blah, blah. It's very interesting. And then you get a little llama sticker. And you also get a sticker that says, do good. And I put that do good sticker on the back of my truck when I still had my truck. And the do good sticker was a lightning rod. There were 50% of the people who would see that sticker and see me by the truck and they'd go, hey, all right, cool, let's do good. And there were 50% of the people that were like, F you, man, do good, hippie. And they were just angry, pissed off, horrible people. Now, the same thing happened now that I'm thinking about it. Back in the day when I worked at the newspaper in Phoenix, I made this picture once of a Che Guevara mural on the side of a bus that was driving from Phoenix through Tampico, Mexico to the airport and flying to Cuba and hooking up with Castro, a trip I was supposed to go on. And the photo editor at the paper literally looked at me and said, no one cares about Cuba, not knowing that Phoenix had the second largest population of Cubans in the U.S. outside of Miami, right? So that tells you about the news industry. But anyway, I make this picture, and it's just the side of a yellow school bus with this hand-done Che mural. And I made a little Xerox print and put it on my, lock, my locker. I come back the next day, and it's torn off. And the, the taped edges are still there, but the middle of the print is torn up. And I go to the, to the trash can, and there it is, and it's crinkled up and in the trash. So I uncrinkle it, and I retape it. And somebody was coming in every night and tearing it off and throwing it up. Somebody who was either pissed about, they hated Latin Americans, they hated Cuba, they hated Castro, they hated the story, something, they just couldn't handle it. And the Do Good sticker was the same kind of thing on my truck, right? I'm, I'm surprised that no redneck or militia member out there keyed my truck over the Do Good thing. But it got me thinking how much better you and I and all of us would collectively be if we took one day a week and we just said, all right, and I can, not everybody can do this, but the people who can should. Today's my do-good day, right? And I don't mean you wear flowers in a loincloth and dance through the street with little symbols on your finger, fingers. Now, if you want to do that, go ahead, because it would make a good photograph. And I would photograph you if you did that. But I think what do-good could be, and I'm making a list in my head as, as I think about this, this could be writing letters. 
It could be learning a language, which I'm doing right now. I'm using Duolingo and Zupa to, to try to learn Spanish again because I can't speak it anymore. It's gone. I don't know where it went. But I think when I'm able to speak Spanish again, that will that will end up translating into into something really good for me and potentially for a lot more than me. Like I might end up translating, which I've done, by the way. I once translated for a police department in a domestic dispute as I showed up as a photographer and the police department didn't have anyone who spoke Spanish. And so I translated between the cops and a guy who was in trouble, I think, for, for doing the wrong thing at home. And uh, I was like, this isn't, that's not good when no one on the police force speaks Spanish. And this was in a Spanish-speaking city, by the way. So the do-good day could be writing letters to family members. It could be learning a language. It could be, I don't know, exercising. And here's the wrinkle that I want to throw in because this is an obvious point. Like, we should take a day of the week. I would take a work day. I know that sounds crazy, and your boss is certainly not going to agree with me. Your boss is going to go, you're a communist, you're a socialist, bad, bad, socialism, bad, follow me here, socialist, bad, right? That's the catch word. The Republicans were brilliant, by the way, for using that word, because Americans are too, too dumb to understand what it means, and they just, like all the Republican constituents are like, oh, socialism, bad, oh, oh, Democrats are socialists. It's, it's, it was actually really intelligent to do that, because it worked, but boss is not going to agree. They're going to label me a communist, a socialist, whatever. I'm okay with that. But I think that the do-good day is as important as a regular work day. Because the do-good day is like you pouring water on a flower, right? It's At some point, it's going to bloom. And I think there's always more than enough work to go around. I think Americans and a lot of other cultures around the world have placed this value on just nonstop, frenetic. How many hours did you put in? Oh, you did 80 hours a week? I did 90. Oh, you slept two hours a night? I slept one. People are bragging about this now. Just like we brag about everything. Travel, you know, I did this, I did that, I go here, blah, blah, blah. It sucks. Just do, take a day of do good. And it doesn't mean uh, doing the things that we necessarily equate. It could be like, I am thinking about donating money to the Cornell ornithography group. So I have a little app on my phone called like uh, bird ID. And I've realized that Cornell university has a huge bird, uh, ornithography department, and they are responsible for cataloging. And like this Saturday is a 24 hour marathon birding event, blah, blah, blah. By the way, dead finch on my front porch. I just photographed it, uh, this morning. My wife was started screaming, and I was like, ah, oh, great, I did something else to, to worthy of, of a scream. And she came running in with her hands cringed and her face all twisted up. There's a dead bird on the patio. I said, go out and touch it and then rub your eye. So uh, anyway, do good, we would be better. Uh, that's all I'll say. So I'm thinking of donating, and not a lot, just a tiny. It feels good if you have the extra cash, and especially now at a time where you think, oh, man, i got to save every penny. It's kind of liberating to go, okay, maybe not, maybe I don't. Maybe I can do this, and that'll help somebody else. Learn a language, learn guitar, write letters, do something good, constructive, and stay the F off your, the internet. Okay, number four, I absolutely love this. I saw this last week, and I knew, I knew five years ago this would happen because I saw a trend happening. So I used to live in Los Angeles. I lived in LA for five years, and I lived around Los Angeles for almost 25 years. So I never liked LA. It's my least favorite city, major city on the planet. I'm not a huge fan of California cities in general. I'll take San Francisco because of the geographic and, and ge geographical beauty, the ocean, the bridges, the headlands. You know, it is a remarkably beautiful place. But as a city itself, I'm not a huge fan of San Francisco. But remember, I grew up in a town of six people for four months a year, and the rest of the time I lived in, the, in Hicksville 
in Indiana. So I was out in the country. I'm much more of a country person, much happier in, in suburbia spacing, much happy, happier in country spacing than I am in the city. L.A. was polluted. It was crowded. It was expensive. It was filled with a lot of people who were pretending to be people they weren't, etc. So I had a pretty good idea of what L.A. was after living in the middle for five years and then being around it for 25 years. But as San Francisco imploded with the greed of the tech world and people started fleeing, right? They first fled to Oakland and then Oakland got too expensive. They fled further out, south, north, east. Um, They couldn't go west, obviously, unless they wanted to live on a boat. And so I saw people fleeing and there was a certain segment of San Franciscans that said, LA is the promised land. LA is so much better and it's so much more amazing. And they were all, these were hipsters, right? These were people that would suddenly go down there on vacation. They go to Silver Lake always. They do the, they do the hipster trail, Silver Lake, Palm Springs, Salton Sea, uh, Salvation Mountain, uh, Joshua Tree, back to Silver Lake. They would all make that same loop. That's called the hipster trail. And they go down there, and I'm like, LA is not what you think it is. It's not what you think it is. Oh, no, this is great. We're going to go. It's so much cheaper than San Francisco. San Francisco's lost its soul, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, LA had no soul. It never did. It never will. And you're making a huge mistake. And lo and behold, it is, they're starting to crumble right and left. And so I just saw another story called, quote, hipsters are turning on LA. Now, I laughed hysterically when I saw that article because the person who was presenting that article was, tr- was trying to chill and sail people on the idea that she was leaving, right? There was always a ploy with the hipster. There's always, the, especially the YouTube hipster, I need to somehow profit if I, can con- if I convinced everybody to come down here, right? I made money on this going in one direction. And now I'm going to try to make money on it going in the other direction. And I just love it because every single thing they complain about LA was something you could have seen from outer space 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. It's always been that way. So it's hysterical. Now, what sucks about this is that when hipsters abandon San Francisco and hipsters abandon Los Angeles... Um, I just hope to hell that they do not abandon in numbers because these people go east. And the, fr- the fact is nobody wants them, right? They don't, Phoenix doesn't want them. Vegas doesn't. Well, maybe Vegas does. Denver doesn't want them. Albuquerque doesn't want them. Nobody wants these people. They're transients. They come, they try to milk it, and then they leave. And so to listen to people turning their backs on L.A. now is frankly hysterical. And, and frankly, L.A. is probably better now than it was when I was there. I mean, take downtown. Downtown, yes, it's gentrifying, but at the same time, there's a reason to go down there. There's business, there's people, there's activity, there's food, there's restaurants, there's art, there's all kinds of stuff that wasn't there when I lived there. When I lived in downtown LA, no one that I knew went to downtown LA except for the handful of people who lived in in lofts. And so I think potentially LA is turning a corner and maybe it's a good corner, but um, I just love the fact that these hipsters have now decided that it's not cool anymore. That's pretty funny. Okay, uh, this is a good point, and I didn't have enough time to do research on this, enough research, because it is a really good point. I've been in an email conversation with someone who found me on YouTube, and this is about the concept of reality-based photography and how it is considered in the fine art world. And I mean the actual fine art world, the world where that is the legitimate fine art industry, not the online, you know, pseudo-hypersaturated landscape YouTube photographer fine art world. I'm talking about like the Museum of Modern Art, the major galleries, the major museums that would exhibit photography. And why that reality-based photography has never had 
the consideration that conceptual photography, for example, would have. Now, for the first 20 years of my career, I never liked conceptual photography. I thought it was a cop-out. And I kind of turned my back on the whole art photography world, number one, because I was monumentally naive and didn't really have an understanding of what it was about. And two, I looked at a lot of the people who were successful conceptual art photographers, and in my opinion, I looked at them and said, you'd never hack it in my world. You could never work in a world that you couldn't control. So for a fine, conceptual fine art photographer to go work on the border would be incomprehensible, and they would probably go down there and either get killed, get kidnapped, flounder, drown in the river, you know, something horrible. That's how I looked at them and said, you just could not hack it in my world. And I also simultaneously had no interest in the fine art world or trying to put my work in that space. Again, on me, I didn't have any understanding of what it was about. Now I look at it very differently. I look at the fine art photography world as, the, as basically the frontier. This is 1835 to 1850 in America, where people standing on the Missouri River would look west and go, what the hell is out there? And people would be like, I don't know. You know, uh, I don't, they literally didn't know. Is there land? Is, does the ocean start uh, 10 miles from here? Is China right over there? Like, no one had any idea, right? The frontier, they, until we started exploring it. That's how I look at the fine art world now. It is the last frontier. It's the Alaska of the photo world. You can do legitimately any conceivable thing you can dream up. If you justify, you make good work, you have process, and you, and you justify what it is you're doing. The rest of the photo genres are so crushed and compromised at this point, um, they don't even resemble the industry of old. But there is one thing that always drives me crazy. There is a photographer named Paul Graham that if you don't know, you should look him up. I will do a terrible job of describing him. Uh, Paul Graham also writes about photography, and he writes about this topic in particular, why the art world has never embraced reality-based photography. And Paul Graham will explain this far better than I ever will, and he's far more intelligent than I will ever be, and speaks very eloquently about photography. I would definitely look that up because I can't explain it as, as well as he can. And it's true. You know, you don't, if I think of even the gallery world in Los Angeles, I can remember the reality-based photo shows on one hand over the entire time that I lived in California, 25 years. I do remember, however, reality-based photographers who learned to play the art game where they would suddenly shift into a project that was more palatable to that scene and they would get exhibited because they were represented by the gallery. Um, and that happened. But most of the reality-based stuff just didn't. And frankly, it's because it doesn't sell like the conceptual work, right? So anyway, we, that's a whole other conversation. But look up Paul Graham, and I think uh, what you'll find is, is amazing. Okay, I'm just going to throw this out there. And this is, uh, I think I'm a vegetarian now. I think I am dangerously close to vegetarianism. Not veganism. F the vegans, right? I mean, who needs them? Um, I think I'm dangerously close. And this came along. Did I tell you about throwing up? I think I did. I think I gave you intimate detail of puking at my mom's house and getting sick and becoming vegetarian. So I think the final straw here, and that's what I want to add, is I had a dream. I dreamt of, of pork. I did. I will admit it. I had a dream about pork, and I had a dream that I was sneaking pork, and I was hiding it from my wife. And now this wasn't normal pork. This wasn't like carnitas, right? If you're going to eat pork, good carnitas is like proof that there is a God. And I'm talking about the shredded pork that's crisp on the outside. 
And a lot of people do this well. A lot of Latin American countries do carnitas really well. And the other wrinkle to this is if you go to Australia or you go anywhere in, in South Asia, and they have, or you have even North Asia now that I think about it, they have that crispy pork belly, right? I mean, if you're going to eat this, you, you will take a year off your life every time you eat this, but it is worth it. I don't care if you die tomorrow. It is worth it. But I'm dreaming, right? And I'm in this dream, and I'm sneaking pork, and I'm hiding it from my wife, and it's not regular carnitas pork. This is like the 99-cent Chinese buffet breaded pork that's dipped in MSG. Like there's a, they dip it in MSG, then they fry it, and then they dip it in something else like mayonnaise, and they fry it again. That's the kind of stuff that I'm sneaking in the dream. And like I have a side order of MSG, and I'm dipping the pork in the MSG, and my arteries are like, uh, I wake up thinking I'm having a heart attack. And I think the combination of throwing up at my mom's house and waking up thinking I'm having a heart attack because I'm sneaking the Chinese pork in my dream was kind of in God's way. If there is a God, and I am not religious at all, if there is an entity out there that's controlling things, then I think it was them tapping or it tapping me on the shoulder and saying, Milner, why don't you just go ahead and commit to the vegetarian lifestyle? So when it warms up, and if I'm feeling healthy enough to be active and the COVID has released its grip um, and I start exercising again and I can survive by not eating meat, I think I'm going to go down that route. And the one thing of this that kills me is seafood. You know, I can get the meat, the pork, the chicken, the beef. I don't think I have any problem at all giving that up. And again, I don't hate people who are not vegetarians. I'm clearly not a vegetarian yet, but I'm close. Um, if you want to eat meat, hey, more power to you. I grew up on a cattle ranch, so I get it. But it's the seafood. And the, the truth is, if you study what's happening with the ocean and the numbers and the decline of seafood, we, none of us should be eating it. Okay, let's just be honest. We just should not be eating it. And uh, I mean, there was a big story in LA a couple of years ago where they were talking about um, calamari was being substituted for, for pig bung. Think about that. That is just the greatest story in the history of the world. When I saw that, I was like, I can die now. I've just seen everything I want to see in the world. So people were secretly eating pig bung thinking they were eating calamari. Maybe pig bung is better. I don't know. I just, a thought, I just want to leave you with that on a Friday. Wherever you are right now, maybe you're having a cup of tea, maybe you're eating some carnitas, and I throw out pig bung, and you're not as hungry as you were a few minutes ago. I don't know. Think about it. Okay. I just read this book called The Nature Fix. You should all read it. It's by Florence Williams. It's a wonderful book. Two of my friends, Sean in Japan, and Sh actually, believe it or not, I think the two Seans, Sean in Japan, and Sean and Denver both wrote and said, hey, I read that book. It's a really awesome book. And it's filled with statistics. It's filled with humor. And it's filled, it's filled with field work, which is what I love the author describing going into the field with a variety of different scientists looking for data that correlates between the health of a human being and their exposure to nature. We know beyond the shadow of a doubt that nature makes us healthier and happier, but they are trying to quantify. It's a very interesting thing. 2008 was the first year that we officially became a city-dwelling species. More people in the world in 2008 lived in a city than in the countryside. That is a monumental problem. It really is. There's an upside to it. People in the city are easier to take care of. You can live in high-density environments. In the future, there are a lot of people who think the only way our species is going to survive is if we all live in high-density environments. Certain cities around the world are preparing really well. They're doing incredibly smart things. They're learning to farm on vertical walls and rooftops and solar and everything. And then we have the U.S., which is we'll, we'll all be starving to death and killing each other in the rubble. That's 100% guaranteed. 
But one of the things that really got me about this book was that we are now experiencing what they are calling the, the, the total human detachment from nature. And obviously, I think uh, this is all related to the screen, and it's related to the internet. And I think that this is, the book goes through a bunch of statistics, like, for example, 1,500 views of our phones per week. Most of us are on averaging 1,500 views of our phones. 36% of people check their phone while they're having sex, and 70% of people sleep with their phone. Okay, if this is not an indicator, a roadmap with a giant fluorescent arrow pointing in the direction of the culprit that has allowed us to become not only city-dwelling people, but to experience a total detachment from nature. Um, I don't know what is. I think, oh, and by the way, iPhone users are even worse than Android. So um, the books the author was suggesting, if you're going to get married, marry an Android user. Probably a good idea. What I'm, where I'm leading to with this point is COVID, right? And I think if you understand the move to the city, the detachment from nature, then you start to under, have a better understanding of something like COVID, how it could come about, and how we could be so unprepared. Because there's a lot of people floating around who have under, absolutely zero understanding of the natural world. And so when you talk about things like zoonotic disease, they don't know what you're talking about, right? They don't know that 60% of diseases now are zoonotic. They don't know what the term zoonotic means. They've never heard of this. They don't seem to have an awareness of Ebola. They don't seem to have an awareness of SARS or MERS or anything else. Maybe like a little tiny skipping a stone across a pond level of knowledge, but not enough to really have any opinion or add to the conversation. I think the internet has really turned us inside out, and I think this is just another example. Um, I also find that there's a lot of people who are terrified of nature. You know, for example, you can I can drive someone up to the Santa Fe Ski Basin at 10,000 feet and say, hey, there's the top of Santa Fe Baldy. It's 12,600. It's going to take us around trip about six and a half hours if we go slowly. Um, you know, you need to acclimate, blah, blah, blah. And they are, they could be terrified of bears. They could be terrified of mountain lions. They could be terrified of getting dirty. They could be terrified of the rain, terrified of the distance. You know, they just don't know how to interface. And I think that's on us. That's on the people who like nature, who understand it, who think that it's a beneficial thing to figure out new ways of engaging screen people into going out and not worrying about all these things, you know, whether it's my nieces and nephews who are very much into the screen. Um, and there's also this assumption that you can substitute what's in the natural world by something on the screen. And that's simply impossible. I did a post this morning about a rainbow that transpired here at the house a, few, a week or so ago. And, and there's really no way of describing what it's like to stand on the patio and watch this thing emerge and then form and then disappear. You know, yes, I made pictures. Yes, I posted it online. It's like me showing you an image of the Grand Canyon and saying, Gee, you don't need to go anymore because just look at my photograph. It doesn't translate, right? It's just a different thing, a different experience. So we as a collective have to do a better job of engaging people to understand what nature is and why it's beneficial. And it's, and it's not only beneficial health-wise, but that translates into finance. And that's really here in America where I think we make the change is that Americans are so obsessed over acquiring, whether it's money or things or houses or cars or whatever, you've got to filter through the financial filter. And so I think that's really where it's at is the people who live closer to green areas tend to be healthier, more productive, more successful, et cetera. It's a very interesting topic. Read the book. Um, okay. The Michigan Rednecks, point number nine. And we got a long way to go here. I got so many points. Don't, just, just settle in, right? Take a tranquilizer. Maybe have a, I don't know, drink some kava. Have a kava ceremony. What's that other thing that you can get at bars in Portland? Is it kava? 
Oh, yeah. Side story. So I used to be friends with a guy in LA. I'm still friends with this person. He's very smart, lives in New York now. We were friends in LA. He built my first website ever, ever, which was still to this day the best website I've ever had. This was way back in the day. He was a coder. He worked for Microsoft. He built this amazing site because he was doing all this boring stuff for Microsoft. And he called me and said, you've got interesting work. I really want to build something for you. And we did this site. It was amazing. He had some health issues over the years, kind of dropped off the face of the earth. I didn't see him for a decade. I'm giving a talk in Portland. I look out. There he is. We re-engage. Next day, we go to this bar. He goes, oh, yeah, I want to take you to my favorite bar. We go to this bar. I think it's a kava bar. I think that's what I'm after here is kava. There could be some other other drug that I'm missing or misplacing here. But we go to this thing, and you drink it out of these wooden bowls. And I don't know what it is. And there's like 10 kinds, and there's this is super strong, and this is horribly strong, and this is tragically strong. and, And I'm like, I don't know. And so we sit down and he goes, bam, and just pounds this first bowl of kava, orders a second, pound, boom, pounds it. I drink one and I'm like, I'm on some deserted island somewhere, mentally. I no longer know I'm in Oregon. I'm, I could be in Sumatra for all I know. And, um, and I have no idea why I'm telling this story right now, by the way. But let's go back to the Michigan rednecks and their guns. So, uh, and this, this is a, two, a two-part point. The Michigan rednecks and the militias have gotten a lot of attention over the past couple of weeks, and they should. And I want to throw Michael Flynn in here, which is a story that broke yesterday. So the Michigan rednecks and their guns, and they're, they're protesting the economy, quote-unquote, the economy being closed, right? The truth is that has, what they're doing has nothing to do with the economy. I think most of us know that. And I got to thinking, like, where would these people want to go that they couldn't go? And most of the militia members, I think, are going to Walmart, they're going to fast food, they're going to gun shops, they're going to auto parts, they're going to the pot dispensaries, right? Those are the primary locations. I don't think they're going to beauty salons, libraries, health spas, schools of any kind, or finer dining establishments, or even a swanky cocktail bar. I think all of those, they're never going to go to. It's not where militia people go. I think what you're seeing is a lot of lonely people who are suckered into online conspiracy groups while waiting to be attacked by people who don't exist. I think that's what you're seeing. And the cops, you know, these guys are talking about no-knock searches and people are going to come to their doors and take their AR-15s. They're literally waiting for that because they don't seem to really have any other plan. They don't have anything else to do. So they're waiting. And the truth is, most cops want to go home and have dinner with their family. They want to survive their shift. They want a pay increase. Many, many police officers around the country are underpaid. They're also undertrained because the training requires money and funding and shooting ammunition is expensive. And so they're looking to make it home alive and they want to have dinner with their family. Do they really want to go out and do no-knock warrants and steal people's AR-15s? I don't think so. You know, it's a lot easier to make your quota writing tickets. There's a lot of other things to do. There's break-ins and domestic disputes and all that not, you know, horrible stuff that cops have to put up with on a daily basis. But here's the, the, the wrinkle to this, is that most of these—Trump is, is playing these people. He has been for a long time, and he's done it really well. Like, these people are more down with Trump today than ever, and I think that's why he's a lock to win in 2020. So they're, he's playing them. He knows he can play them. They're his least favorite people on earth. They're un, unwealthy— white people for the most part, right? They're unwealthy and they're, they're not wealthy. And Trump has disdain for anyone who is not financially above means. So he's playing them, but he's also riling them up, right? And this is where Michael Flynn comes in. So there's a lot of naive people out there who still think that there's a chance that we write the ship with Trump, right? They still think there's a chance that Trump's going to go to the podium and do the right thing, right? 
There's a lot of people, unfortunately, because obviously that ain't happening anytime soon. And it's certainly not happening now because he's been getting away with it for three and a half years and nobody's stopping him at all. So the Flynn thing was interesting. The Flynn is a message to everyone in Trump's circles, including the militia people. The Flynn message is, if you do an illegal activity for me, you are covered. That is what releasing Michael Flynn is about. Flynn admitted to two felonies, two guilty pleas. So we know he was guilty. He admitted to it, etc. He went to jail. And Trump and Barr got him out because here's the message, the long-term message, is that we are changing the playing field. We are changing the rules. We are going to start doing things that are going to go against the grain of human decency, of society, and everything else because now we have the power and ability to do it. And the Flynn had nothing to do with Flynn. Flynn had everything to do with sending a message of you are untouchable if you are in my circle. If I ask you to kill and you kill, you are okay. If I ask you to take back, quote, take back your state and take go after the governor, you are protected. If I ask you to do something with the military that's illegal, if I ask you to do something, anything illegal, I got your back. It's a mafia tactic. It's a dictator tactic, et cetera. And we just saw it unfold yesterday. So if the odds of the election going peacefully, smoothly, and Joe Biden and mystery VP winning the election, in my opinion, and I hope I'm wrong. I really hope I'm wrong. I hope I'm completely catastrophically wrong. And if I am, I will make an entire for what it's worth based on me saying I was wrong. I have no problem admitting when I'm wrong. It is just that I am looking and every indicator is showing this. And when they released Flynn, I was like, that's the next step. So my advice to you is you better have a plan B because Trump is about to blow plan A out of the water, especially if he wins re-election. He owns the Senate, he owns justice, he owns the court system, and he owns everything. He is untouchable. So again, just a little positive thing to get you to get you uh, bumped up for the weekend. Okay, uh, let's see here. What do I want to move on to? Or, um, oh wow, I have the same point twice. Huh? That's interesting. Okay. Uh, this is a point about photography. So. Now that I'm on YouTube, now that I'm a darling, now that everyone loves me, and that I'm, I'm adored worldwide, and that I, I really can't go anywhere anymore because of the fame, but that's, you know, it's a price you pay for being a genius. I get a lot of people emailing me now, and for some reason, they always email me through my photo shelter account. It's uncanny. No one has my actual email address, <clears throat> which is good. The interesting part is the emails are coming from all over the world. That's always fun. One, because the English as a second language email is a blast to read and always funny. And I'm not knocking you for English as a second. It'd be like me trying to write an email in French or German or even Spanish for that matter. Spanish I could do well, but the rest of these languages, probably not so much. Um, that's a fun part. But also, I just like getting emails from people I don't know and people that are enthusiastic about photography and they're curious and they're driven. I love that. There's absolutely nothing wrong with any of that. But a lot of times people are asking me to look at their work, which is fine. Often I don't have really have a lot of time to do that because I'm pretty jammed up. Um, but they, one of the questions I get all the time is, tell me if this is good. Tell me if I'm good. Now, occasionally I get someone who says, quote, I know I'm great. Okay, now that's fun too because, 
you know, I've never, I've never said that in my life about myself to anyone. I probably never would. Most of my friends probably never would, but you know, some people would. I do know a photographer who will tell you straight to your face that she's one of the best photographers to ever walk the earth. How do I know this? Because I've seen her do it. I've been standing there when she said it to someone who didn't, was outside of photography and said, oh, you're a photographer? Uh, are you good? And she was like, yeah, I'm one of the best people to ever do this. And I was like waiting for her to start laughing and smiling. And I was like, oh, she's not kidding. So it happens. But the truth of the matter is, does it matter? It, it, it doesn't matter. And, and I guess I never got the gene of having to fit in, right? So my parents told me, this is a great parenting story, by the way. My parents told me in elementary school that I was never going to fit in anywhere. That, think about that. Think about how many parental rules that fractured in one sentence. My parents were like, you're never going to fit in. Now, I think, I think they weren't refined. My father was like a blunt instrument, right? He was definitely not refined. My mother was a little bit more refined at the time. She drank espresso. She was a vegetarian. She had long hair braided down to her ass. She traveled to Europe. You know, she was maybe, and we lived in a little hick town. So for our hick town, she was like, you know, super cutting edge. She was the Anna Wintour of our town. And so, but my father was a blunt instrument. But I think that you're never going to fit in thing was a backhanded compliment. That's, I think, I think that's what they were getting at. They just didn't know how to do it. So I never cared. Um, when I got an internship in 93, started working at the paper, didn't know what I was doing. I was tr working my ass off, trying to figure it out. A lot of other photographers helped me. But the one thing I was not driven by was getting images in the paper. Even though it happened all the time, I just, that, I didn't care. A lot of other people were driven, I mean mad driven to get in the paper, especially A1, B1, C1, et cetera, the section fronts. And getting on the front page was always, you know, kind of like, eh, novelty. And there was an instructor at Arizona State University that would cut out the clipping from the paper and send it to you. He taught photojournalism. He would write a note like, hey, you nailed it. Good job, whatever. And getting one of those in the mail for people is a big deal. I never cared. Um, I was on Flickr when it started. And I have no idea how many people followed me. I have no many comments I had, nothing. I just put it out there with no real aim in mind. I raced bicycles, right? I raced BMX. I first raced BMX in the parking lot of Buttrey's Grocery Store in Laramie, Wyoming in 1977 on a DJ, DG bike, and then I moved on to a PK Ripper bicycle. By the way, for you BMX fans, you'll know what I'm talking about, and I will instantly be memorialized in your in your idolatry level of BMX riders. Yes, I raced BMX. Did I care about winning? No. What I cared about was doing massive air and cross-ups on the jump so that the crowd would cheer. I found that more interesting than the actual winning of the race. I also ran over a kid who was a total asshole. Everyone hated this kid. They hated his parents. They hated him. He would show up at the track. He had sew-up tires and the super light bike, and he had sponsorship, and everyone hated him. And he was good. He was fast. He won all the time. That's how, why he got the sponsorship, right? And I'm some schlub in the back of the pack doing cross-ups on the jumps because the crowd would cheer. And one day he crashes in front of me. And it's just him and me. And he crashes face first. Boom. Face plant right into the middle of the track. And his arms are trapped under his handlebars. So not only has he crashed, but he can't get up. And now I'm coming at warp speed behind him. And I have two choices. I can bunny hop him. I have three choices. I can bunny hop him. I can go around him. Or I can run over him. What do you think Uncle Dano did? Uncle Dano ran his ass over. 
And guess what? The crowd cheered more than at any time in my writing history because everybody hated him and they loved seeing him get run over. Yes, humans are demented and I am right there with you. The point is I don't care. So when someone writes me an email and says, hey, tell me if I'm any good, my question is what difference does it make, right? And so someone wrote me and said, I think I'm really good. And I said, why do you think you're good? And he said, because I get all this feedback on one of these photo communities. So it's a photo community, right? Photo communities are about that, right? It's about numbers, conforming, et cetera, et cetera. But a bunch of, it's like likes on Instagram, same thing. It doesn't mean anything. It has nothing to do with whether or not the image is good. It's whether or not you are good, et cetera. What you're getting is, and especially when people are looking at this on a mobile device, it doesn't matter if it's Instagram or 500 or Flickr or whatever, what you are thinking about, just think about it this way. Let's reduce it down to the factual matter. You're talking about someone you don't know in some other part of the world who may or may not have any training at all, who is looking at a little tiny four-inch piece of glass and moving their thumb up, flicking their thumb every second and a half up, and then for some fraction of a second, they see something you did. They may not even comprehend the whole image or even have seen the whole image, but they hit the like button and they move on. And they do the same thing a hundred, if not thousands of times in one sitting, probably not thousands, but hundreds of time in a sitting, I think is completely doable. I see people do that all the time. And you have no connection to this person other than that hyper short electric thumbprint on their phone. And that's what you're interested in. That's telling you that you're good or bad. First of all, don't put that on yourself. That has nothing to do with good or bad, right? But my, my question about, I guess my primary question here is why would you care? It just doesn't, that kind of thing doesn't matter. If I tell you you're good or you're bad, I'm just one person. Yes, I have a degree in photography. Yes, I spent a lot of years doing this. Yes, I'm still around the industry. Yes, my friends are photographers. Yes, I buy books. I look at work all the time. I get asked to review portfolios. So maybe I have a little bit more relevance than the stranger with their phone in Holland or wherever they are, but I'm just one person. I think ultimately what fueled me and why I'm so in love with photography today more than ever before if, if, is because I don't care. Had I stayed in photography in 2010, if I had not deleted my email account, if I had not said I'm out and boom, deleted my account and moved on, I would not be happy. I would not be in photography today. I would probably not be making pictures at all. I just didn't like it. It just wasn't an enjoyable process. The se and, and I am most happy with a camera when I'm doing things where I just don't really care what anyone else thinks. And I think, oddly enough, a lot of you would be too. I think photography would take on a completely different flavor, a different resonance, and a different sort of harmony in your life because it just doesn't matter right? It just doesn't matter. And so I think the less you care, the more engaging you will be with your photography. And when you do something good and you put it out there, depending, you know, if you show it to, if you do something truly good, you'll know, you'll find out because enough people are going to say to you, enough legitimate people are going to say, man, I saw that and it's pretty great. I'll give you an example. The AG23 zine collaboration, right? Those, most of the stories in the first issue, most, not all, were people that I reached out to and said, your work is really good, right? I've seen this, I know you, I know this work, and I think other people would really appreciate this work. That's why it's in there. 
And so I think that's really what you're after here is just do whatever it is you do and live with it. And if it gains attention and you, and people say, look, you're good, you're good, then great. But I guess what I'm saying is don't care. I think that's it. Uh, I'm sure there's some Buddhist haiku in there that I could drop right now with a quote and then, and ask for you to subscribe to my channel or something, but I just can't think of that right now. Okay. So last point I'm going to do is, uh, is I'm just going to drop this out there. And I am now on a quest to learn a little bit more about this guy. He's someone that you all know. And I'm just going to, this is a very short, short final point here. Wait, I'm supposed to tell a story. I got to think of a story to tell. Uh, is John Muir, the, the environmentalist, the naturalist, who was, um, don't, don't know where he's from originally, but made his name sort of in California. And he's famous for just like leave, walking out the back door with a bag of tea and a biscuit and then coming back like three months later, right? That's all he took. No tent, no sleeping bag, a bag with tea and a biscuit. And he was like, oh, I just came back from three months, right? And his quote that stood out to me recently was that he felt that when he engaged with society, that he had become nothing more than a mechanism for making money. And again, I'm reminded of the current situation that we're in with COVID and the economy and trading lives for dollars. And, it, and America is a business, not a country. And, I'm, and Muir's quote really stuck with me because I think that there is a relevance to that. I think a lot of us have fallen into that category of we are a mechanism for making money. And um, I just think it's a short game, right? It's not a long game. It's a short game. And we're starting to see the wheels come off. And my hope is that we, we put those lug nuts back on and we save ourselves. But I don't know. All right, so let me think of a story here if I can. And if not, I'm just going to cut this. It's already been 57 minutes. You're probably asleep. Most people play this at night when they're going to sleep, and by now you're dreaming of Chinese pork. Uh, I had a story about Guatemala, but that was not, uh, not so good. I'm just going to cut it short. I think that's enough for this week. And then I'll come back at some point with a story. I'm looking at a picture in front of me of knives that I shot, by the way. Maybe there's a story in here that'll spark... No, this is my New Mexico project. 17 by 22 inkjet prints from New Mexico. Ooh, blood on the sidewalk in Roswell. That was a good day. Um, yeah, well driller. That was a good day. Crazy, good day. Oh, I got caught in a hailstorm on this day. Had to run across a field in a lightning storm. People were getting smoked. A camel at White Sands. Nah, it's not a good enough story. All right, I'm coming back next week. Thanks for tuning in. Good luck out there.